Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Zach Diamond and this is my first episode officially hosting after we've passed episode 100 and it's quite a lot to say 102 but that's pretty exciting. Um, I am a middle school music teacher in Washington DC and of course I'm a Modern Classrooms implementer and mentor and today I am joined by Hillary Stover who is a fifth grade teacher in Petoskey, Michigan and also a Modern Classrooms implementer and mentor. Welcome Hillary, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Zach. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited. I am really excited, too. This is a a really interesting topic. We're going to be talking about elementary science specifically, which is like a very niche and specific topic. But, you know, as Tony Rose and I have been saying, we're trying to get more elementary voices here on the podcast. And I think this is a great way to start um, with such a niche specific topic. And I think science is a really interesting topic, too. Um, So before we dive into that, though, Hillary, why don't you go ahead and just introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us, you know, what you teach, where you teach, and how you started your modern classrooms journey? All right. Well, I'm the fifth grade teacher at Concord Academy in Petoskey, Michigan. Uh, and this is my 10th year teaching. It's my sixth year at my current school. Uh, prior to teaching fifth grade, I taught kindergarten for two years. So I've done really little kids and I've done older elementary as well. I came into education later in life. I actually went back to school in my 30s and I uh, got my master's in elementary education and uh, got my first teaching job in Southern California, teaching kindergarten, and then eventually moved back to Michigan. And this is where I've been. Uh, With regards to the Modern Classrooms Project, I kind of came into the model around the same time a lot of teachers did. When COVID hit in 2020, uh, we had to figure out what to do with our students and how we were going to work with them. And so My district offered some blended learning PD over the course of that summer, and I decided to sign up for that. And that focused more or less on just blended instruction in general. Didn't really mention MCP too much, but um, just blended instruction. And that year, my school implemented the Canvas platform with Accelerate Curriculum. So everything was already set up. So I started that year and I was just like, okay, I'm going to have my students self-pace. So I let them self-pace. And uh, by the end of the year, I had some students who had finished all 12 modules and others who had only finished six. So I kind of needed to figure out a better way to do it. So I did some more research and came across the Modern Classrooms Project in the spring of 2021 and decided to take the free course. So after I took that, I decided I was going to implement the model in all content areas, which was a a big uh, challenge, but I'm really glad I did. And uh, my school also uh, switched LMSs and uh, got new math and ELA curriculum. So I was doing that and putting my first units together. (laughs) But (laughs) yeah, once I got going, though, it was amazing the difference it made with my students. And they just really enjoyed 
having the opportunity to self-pace and work with each other more. And uh, I got to work with my students more one-on-one. So that was all really nice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's really interesting. I feel like we hear from a lot of teachers who like sort of implemented proto-modern classrooms before finding out about MCP officially, but they did more things like blended learning and maybe mastery-based assessment. But I've not heard from many teachers who started out with self-pacing, like separate <laughs> from the model. That's really interesting. Um, and I do, I guess, like, as you're researching self-pacing, modern classrooms would be one of the first things to pop up, probably, because it's a big part of the model. Yeah. Um, also, Hillary, did you say that you are the fifth grade teacher at Concord Academy? I am. Yes. I'm the only fifth grade teacher at Concord. We are a DK through 12th grade school. And um, I am the only fifth grade teacher. We have a single teacher for every grade level in elementary, except for second grade, because our first grade teacher does a one-two split and our um, third grade teacher does a two-three split. So, Wow. Interesting. That's a that's a small school. I mean, how many students are in your class most years? Just out of curiosity. Uh, it it varies from year to year. I've had as many as seventeen or eighteen students. I've never had any more than that. Uh, this last school year, I had nine students. This upcoming school year, I have approximately thirteen. Okay. Um, so you mentioned that you rolled out the model in all of your subjects at once. Um, and I know our topic is going to be on science. Uh, but before we get to science specifically, can you kind of give us a rundown of how your modern classroom works? Um, you know, I'm, I'm always curious to hear from elementary teachers because, like, for one, I'm not an elementary teacher. And so I'm not in that world at all. Like, I see different groups of students every day and I teach the same thing to to make mostly all of them. I have two different preps, but I teach the same thing over and over. So I'm curious to hear like how that looks. Like, do you change up the model between your different subjects? Certainly, what does it look like when you're teaching younger students than, than I personally am accustomed to teaching? Can you just give us a rundown of your modern classroom? Yeah. Um, so I do use the model in all subject areas. And when I decided to use the model, I just kind of figured I would go all in and and see what happened. So so did I. I think that definitely those of us who are into the model, we just dive right in, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm glad that I did, though, because then it like really gave me the chance to see what things worked and didn't work. And um, it really helped me to figure out what I was going to be doing because I'm kind of trying a bunch of different things. Um, but I did find that it helped to minimize feelings of anxiety with my students um, because they knew exactly what was going to be happening the whole day. So they knew that they were going to be doing the MCP model all day long and they knew uh, how that was going to be broken down. I do have things set up a little bit differently in each content area. So for like language arts, for our language arts block, uh, I, we have regular ELA time, which is mainly uh, reading, grammar, and spelling. And then I have a writing workshop block. So for the ELA time, students have a pacing tracker that is more like a checklist. And uh, it's got various concepts and activities for the students to do. And then for writing workshop time, it's more of a game board style. And then for Social studies, it's a game board and same thing for math. And then for science, it's kind of like a pacing tracker that follows a checklist. So it was one that I found on uh, the resources on the MCP site, and I just modified that. So I'm using different pacing trackers for all of the concept 
or for all of the subject areas. Uh, but with regards to my public pacing tracker, I just kept that super simple. And I just have a large piece of construction paper that has the subject on the top and then the lessons listed. And there are little pieces of paper with the kids' names on them. And they just move their names along the pacing tracker. Oh, interesting. So you kind of have like, uh, I guess modern classrooms is sort of omnipresent in that paper tracker in all the subjects. Am I understanding that right? Yes. Yeah. And so then they kind of see how the self-pacing plays out differently in the different subjects, but there's still a very like MCP centric feeling in the main tracker in all the classes. So they could like identify the components of the model in all the classes. Yes. That's really cool. That's really cool. So to talk more specifically about science um, and you know, I put this question first because it's going to be about opening routines. But again, I'm, I want to frame this from the perspective of somebody who is not an elementary teacher. Like I said, I teach different groups of students throughout the day. You have the same students for most of the entire day, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So like, I'm curious how you transition into the science block with them. Like maybe is there some kind of a break and they come, they walk back into your classroom before the science class, or do you just switch, you know, like from, from writing workshop into science? And if so, like, what does the transition look like? How do you open the science block, especially if it's not coming out of a break? Sure. I'm just curious to hear, like, how do you move through the day um, in an elementary classroom? So uh, with each period, there's, a specific time that we have that class. So like during language arts time, I have that at a certain time, writing workshop, math, uh, science, and then social studies. And sometimes those classes come after the kids go to band or art and other times they're right back to back. So when they're back to back, I'll usually use some kind of, um, like bell or a sound wand to signal to the students that that period is over with. And then they put their things away from that period. Uh, They have cubbies out in the hall. And so they put things away from that period, grab the stuff that they need for the next class, and just we go ahead and get started right away. Oh, I see. But they actually do, even if they're right back to back, they still exit the classroom and walk back in. Yes. Yeah. I ha- Sometimes I've had the students keep their materials in the classroom and other times the materials are in their cubbies out in the hall. And I found that it's a lot easier to keep things organized for the kids too when they're out in the hall. So then they know that people are coming to the hall through the halls and they have to keep everything nice and neat. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, like the way that I was thinking about this is like, if you're in the room with the kids for an hour... we've all been there for the same hour together. And so like transitioning into science from math or something different would be kind of strange just in my mind. And so I like the idea that they leave and walk back in as a way of sort of like framing that this is a transition. Um, So what about like the opening routines? Like how do you open the science block to get them in the mindset of now we're in science, right? Coming off of whatever the previous subject was. Sure. It kind of depends on what unit we're on. Uh, If we're just starting a unit, I'll usually do a whole class activity. Uh, For example, if we're doing a unit on matter, the whole class activity might be having stations set up in the classroom with different things like a glass of water or rocks with different hardness or something soft. And the kids will uh, walk through those stations working together or in small groups 
kind of making observations about what they're seeing. And then we come back together and we discuss what they noticed. And then after that, they uh, get started on their self-pacing. Other times, if it's not the beginning of a unit, when we start the science block, I just tell them to go ahead and get their stuff and they bring their things back in and just continue on with their self-pacing. You mean they continue on with their self-pacing from the previous science class? Correct. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And then they would use the the tracker, the different trackers to know where they're at. Yes. Um, does that, that paper tracker, just to go back to it for a second, does it have multiple subjects at the same time? So the public one, I have a different color of construction paper for each subject. So like the science one is maybe blue. And so I've got lessons one, two, three, four for science on that tracker. And then the kids just move their names. And that's another way to kind of signify that we've moved into the science block. Correct. Uh, Okay, cool. Cool. So the self-pacing, I think that Modern Classrooms, people, listeners to this podcast, anyone familiar with Modern Classrooms probably has a decent sense of how that goes. Um, I'm curious to ask you as a science teacher, because a question that comes up a lot from science teachers and a question that I, as a music teacher, also get a similar question is that we have these big full group collaborative activities. And in the case of science, I'm referring to labs. Um, How do you ensure in a self-paced class that all of your students are ready when they've been self-pacing to do the lab? Um, Like, how do you get them all on the same page by a certain day if they're self-pacing? So... In my class, since it is an elementary classroom, we don't really have like lab tables and we don't go into these really complex lab activities like you might see in a middle school or high school classroom. They're generally much more simplified because uh, we are elementary. And um, one of the things I'll do is doing that whole class activity at the beginning of the period or beginning of the unit. And then... uh, Throughout the lessons, they'll have different activities that are related to that lesson. And those are things that they do individually or with with partners. So they kind of look at the pacing tracker to see who else is on that same lesson. And then they can work with those peers to, to do that activity. But I don't do any like big um, front of the classroom teacher leading type of lab activities because it's just not something that I do in an elementary classroom. I see. But they'll do smaller activities, like one of the activities that they might do for um, a conservation of matter lesson would be uh, making little pop rockets. So you use those film canisters from like the old film cameras. Hmm. And they put water in that. And then they'll go outside and put a fizzy tablet in that they put the lid back on the canister and as the pressure builds, the canister pops up. Mm -hmm. So they'll do activities like that, that are kind of smaller mini labs. And that might be something that they like do outside or like the messier things that they'll do outside. Okay. Okay. That's cool. Like I'm curious then sort of to get at the same idea as what the question was asking, but now I understand it's a slightly different context, but like what prepares them for that little experiment, like whether they're doing it alone or with a small group or with a partner, not the full class. Right. But still, I feel like uh, I would imagine they need some sort of preface to that. Right. They need to learn about pressure or 
I don't know, the different things that are reacting together or whatever the lesson may be on. Uh, I think you said conservation of matter and also probably like a safety primer or something. Um, like, how do you prepare them for that? And then how do you, I guess, if they can get to it whenever they get to it, that's fine. They get to it when they get to it. But how do you prepare them before they do that? So uh, the lesson will have an instructional video where it's going over the content. And then when the students get to that activity, they come and see me and I kind of talk to them one-on-one or with their small group about what they're going to be doing for that activity. So I do that without a video and it's just me meeting with a smaller group of students saying, okay, this is the first thing that you're going to do. Then you're going to do this and then I have them go and do it. I see. Okay. And so because it's you actually meeting with them live, like how, do, how does that work if it's self-paced? Like, do you ever find there's a bottleneck or like there's too many of them that want to talk to you or do you just group them together and then have them do it like that? It kind of depends uh, when there are several that are right on that lesson, then I just kind of grab them and say, okay, I know that you guys are all on this lesson and that you're going to be getting to this particular activity. Let's go over what you can expect to be doing for this activity. And then when you get to the part of the lesson where you actually do the activity, you already know what you're supposed to do. Um, I don't really see too much of a bottleneck with that. Occasionally, I'll meet with one group and tell them what they need to do. And then a couple more students will start to get to that point as well. And that's when I tell the students that I already talked to about the activity to share what I told them with their peers. Awesome. Okay, that's awesome. So they're, they're information from each other if they're kind of starting to come closer together. I see. Yeah. And I guess because it's not like a chemistry lab or something where it's, there's like glass and reagents right. and all that kind of stuff, right. like not like super high stakes or anything. You can let them do yeah. that. Yeah. Most of the stuff in an elementary classroom, we're dealing with things that you can find around the house and they're, they're doing things like uh, elephant toothpaste or like the volcanoes that are vinegar and baking soda. So it's like smaller things that aren't as dangerous. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, I mean, I guess that I had. I this is this is why I asked, right? Like I said, I, like I, the last time that I experienced elementary science was when I was in fifth grade. So I don't, I don't, I really, I don't know that much about it. So thank you for enlightening me. Um, I, I guess I'm still curious. Like that activity, is that a part of a single lesson, or is it like a benchmark of an entire unit, or like how how does it fit in the scope of a a unit, like? Is it How big is it in terms of the amount of work they're doing in a unit? So my units are relatively short. Um, I use Generation Genius for my science curriculum. So uh, they have a series of lessons that tend to follow a particular unit idea. Uh, and usually it's only anywhere from two to four lessons. So the science units are very short. And so a lesson will be like, for example, that one on uh, conservation of matter. There's just a single lesson on conservation of matter. So the students will watch the instructional video, and then there might be some other activities or videos that they watch that maybe I didn't make, but are just good additional information. And sometimes they're taking notes and sometimes they're not. Um, with fifth graders, they aren't super great about taking notes, but I, I usually use embedded questions in the videos to uh, encourage that. But then the other right, thing right. with science is I do uh, have guided notes for science. That's the only content area where I do have si guided notes for my students. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So in the instructional video, I'll um, 
I'll put it on Edpuzzle and then put a note in Edpuzzle when they get to that part in their notes and tell them what to write down because they really kind of still need a lot of guidance with what to write down. Yeah. So they're watching the video, taking the notes, um, and then the activity like the um, film canister rockets is just a single quick activity that they're doing as part of that lesson. And then when they get done with that activity in that lesson, they will usually write something in their science notebook about what happened. So they draw, draw a model of what happened, kind of explaining it using pictures and words. And they, they'll work with their peers sometimes to do that part of it as well. And then after they do that activity, they will come and see me for a mastery check. So I'll, double check their notes, make sure all of the information on their notes is correct. If everything looks good on their notes and they have enough information in their science notebook from the activity that they did, then I give them their mastery check. And so the, like the film canister is, it's just sort of like a, like a demonstration of the concept they're learning. The mastery check isn't to do the, like the lab notebook or the science notebook breakdown afterwards. It's like a, we're going to sort of augment your learning by demonstrating something that you've learned about uh, conservation of matter, but that's not the actual concept itself. I see. Correct. Yeah. Okay. That's very cool. And I really like that, like science notebook or lab notebook. It's sort of like a sketchbook in art. It's like a, I, I actually minored in chemistry when I was in college. And so like, I, I have this sense of like doing that. It's a very science thing to do, but when I think about fifth graders doing it, it also makes me think of the, the very like reflective approach that we want our students to take to their learning. Um, just like thinking back on what happened, how does this connect to what we've learned and, and that kind of thing. That's very cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, so actually you kind of already answered my next question, but I want to ask it to you anyway, in case there's any more you want to say about this, but I was thinking of labs as these like full group activities. Um, and so I also wanted to ask you about collaboration on a smaller scale, like day-to-day collaboration, organic collaboration, not full group. Um, that's more or less what you already described to me, but, uh, like how else do you encourage not on those types of activities or labs, I guess, um, but like just using the tracker, you mentioned that. How do you encourage your students just to work with each other on a daily basis? I also really liked what you said about having them. I already told you this, but it was so cool to hear how you have your students like instruct each other in the lab protocols. That's cool. Um, but how else do you encourage them to collaborate? So the the main thing is is using the pacing trackers. That's kind of the easiest way to get them to collaborate because I can uh, tell them to look on the pacing tracker to see who else is on that lesson, and then they can find a partner to work with. Um, other ways that we collaborate is uh, students will do uh, small group projects. Uh, sometimes at the end of the science unit, we'll do a small, we'll do small group projects also in some of the other subject areas we do. So students have opportunities to collaborate, uh, in those projects. Uh, when they're doing math, they work with each other to, uh, to work through the practice problems. So they'll do that, uh, with collaboration. Those are kind of the main, the main things that we do, uh, They'll do partner work on some things uh, with grammar. They might do a back and forth activity or with reading a textbook for language arts. They might do uh, um, like take turns reading with each other with whatever material they have to read. So there are opportunities for that. 
yeah, it's kind of th- really throughout the day. Just they really have the chance to work with each other uh, at any point during the day. The only time that they're not working with each other is on the mastery checks. But for everything else that they're doing, they can work with each other. If they want to watch the videos together, they can. I usually try to encourage them to just watch the videos by themselves because we are one-to-one. And uh, I find that with fifth graders, they can kind of distract one another a bit more when they're trying to watch the videos together. Whereas if they're watching it individually, then it's a little bit easier for them to stay focused on completing that video and taking any notes or doing anything else that they need to do for it. Yeah, I I have a similar experience actually with my sixth graders. Um, I do find that older students... Like we'll get headphone splitters and they'll both be wearing headphones plugged into the same computer and, and they can handle that. Um, but I do, I know, I see what you're saying about how they distract each other. That does happen with my younger kids. So I definitely, that echoes my experience. But definitely, I think what you said about using the tracker is like, <laughs> I don't know, it's like the right answer, right? It's, <laughs> like, it's, it's so easy because right. it... it it literally says who's on what lesson. And it's like, I, I see a lot of um, my, when my mentees submit, my modern classrooms mentees submit the third module, the one where you actually design your self-pacing plan. One of the questions is how will you encourage collaboration? And I think uh, a lot of people write in there like, ask three before me. We all We all know that little protocol, right? It's like, well, which three? It's right there on the tracker. It's super easy. The data is right there. And I've, I've talked about this before on the podcast. Like if a kid comes to me with a question that I know some other student can answer, I will like, look, I will model the thought process they should be going through. Like look at the tracker and say, let's see who's finished lesson four and who you could go and talk to. You know, it looks like student one, student two, and student three have all finished. So you can go and talk to them. Right. And student four is ahead. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's so easy. And, and you, at the end there, you were kind of like, it's happening all day. Because the tracker makes it really, really easy and like seamless and, and authentic, I think. Yeah. Yeah, the the tracker definitely uh, helps them to just kind of see what's going on and where everybody is. And it's definitely the first thing that I have them uh, consider when it comes to collaboration. Definitely. Well, awesome. We are going to take a short break. And when that's over, we will be right back to talk more about elementary science. Hi, everyone. Allison Vanterpool here from the Modern Classroom Project staff. I'm here to tell you about all the scholarship opportunities we have right now. If you want to go through our virtual mentorship program or invite your friends to go through training this fall, check out our scholarships page at www modernclassrooms.org slash scholarships. We have regional scholarships available for educators in Baltimore City, New York City, D.C., Chicago, Tulsa County, and the Twin Cities that include full tuition, a year of implementation support, and a $500 stipend for finishing the program. We're continuing our scholarship across the state of Indiana as well, which includes implementation support and 30 PGPs. Any teacher in the state can enroll right now at modernclassrooms.org slash Indiana. We also have partnerships with districts across the country who are paying for their educators to go through training. The deadline to apply for scholarships for our October session is September 20th. We're awarding them on a rolling basis, so apply if you want one or send it to a friend who might want one too. All right, folks, we are back with Hillary Stover, and we are going to 
keep on talking about elementary science. She's going to keep on educating me because I feel like I'm revealing my ignorance of elementary school. Um, but anyway, this is a question I, again, I, I think that I'm probably making an assumption based on my experience in science classes and the science classes that I remember are from like college. But I have this, like this image in my head of the science teacher doing live demonstrations, like of, of experiments and things like that. Do you do that in your science class? Uh, I don't do as many live demonstrations as I'd like to uh, because the classroom isn't really set up with those kinds of resources. Uh, We have no lab tables. It's literally just desks and and like a round table on a carpeted classroom. So we, we don't do some of the more extravagant things that you might see in middle school or high school science. But for my science curriculum, I use Generation Genius. And the Generation Genius videos are set up where Dr. Jeff performs some great experiments with the two students in the videos. So he does a lot of really neat like experiments that I wouldn't be able to do in my classroom anyway. Mm -hmm. So what I usually end up doing is create my own video with the content And then I have my students go back and watch the Generation Genius videos so that they can see some really cool experiments. Got it. I do do some demonstrations in my class, though. And when I do, I try to do them live uh, rather than in a video. Uh, The students really like when I do things with dry ice because it's something I can easily get. And there's a lot of neat stuff that you can do with that. And some of the stuff that I would like to do, I just can't do because I don't have access to those chemicals or the other things that a high school science teacher might be able to get. Uh, So a lot of the stuff that that I do in class with demonstrations, it's stuff that you see around the house, stuff that kids will often do for uh, science fairs and things like that. So I I gather those materials and, and show them demonstrations that way. I see. Yeah. I mean, that. I guess that's sort of, it, it. it's an answer that makes sense is to have the demonstrations be on video. But like you said, it's probably more engaging for the kids when it's actually you doing them, if you can. Mm. I, I guess the reason that I was asking this question is because, you know, there's this very common misconception about modern classrooms that we have our kids just sitting in front of computers watching videos the whole entire time. And I was wondering how you would transition between a live demonstration and the video or, or like if you would, how you would incorporate the live demonstration into a class that's mainly based on video while recognizing that most of the time that, that they spend in, in the science class is not just sitting there watching videos. Would you, is that how you would characterize your class? Yeah. Uh, usually the kids will watch the instructional video that I create. And then, as I said, they'll do other activities. Right. Um, so for the demonstrations, I'll usually do those again at the beginning of the unit. Or sometimes I just stop right in the middle of something and or right when the students are in the middle of a unit and some are at the beginning of the unit, some are towards the end. And I just think that the kids could use a break. So we stop and take a break. And I'm like, OK, we're going to try this experiment, I'm going to show you what happens when you put dry ice in a bottle with water and a balloon on top. And so things like that. It Sometimes I just kind of throw them in at different <laughs> points. Yeah, no, and that's cool. It's like, because they're cool, right? Like yeah. I can, I can make the connection on how that's related to pressure, right? Yeah. It's like the same idea. That's, that's really cool. And so I guess also like you don't need to be concerned that they're not all on the same lesson because this is just sort of a pop-up. Hey, let's check out what this dry ice does. Like everyone's 
I'm probably at least aware that we're talking about pressure, if that's the topic that we're talking about, right? So yeah, conservation of matter. So right, of course. Um, and so it doesn't. It doesn't need. You don't need to concern yourself with the fact that some students may not have reached the lesson where this demo will be useful to them. Right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, because because they'll remember it regardless of where they are in the unit. Yeah, so definitely. If I'm showing them something, and maybe the student's not quite on the lesson that pertains to that exact thing, but they're almost there, the demonstration will kind of spark their interest a bit more to see, okay, well, what what else am I going to be learning about here? And then they uh, they'll kind of be motivated a little bit more to to work totally. through those lessons so that they can better understand what that what was happening in that demonstration. Yeah, totally. I can see how the demonstration benefits students on either side of the video, right? Like either it engages them and then it has them as they watch the video, they think back to it and remember like seeing something that resonates with them and learn from the video or a student who's already watched the video, seeing the demonstration next and like making connections from what they saw in the video. I can see how it would benefit both. Yeah. So I guess more, more broadly trying to maybe zoom out a little bit here. Um, have you had any challenges using modern classrooms specifically in science class? Since we're here talking about science, right? Uh, what would you say are the uniquely challenging aspects of modern classrooms in elementary science, like in this specific topic? So uh, for me, one of the biggest challenges when I was first uh, starting with the model for science was just figuring out how I was going to do it because we don't have a, a re, like a full science curriculum. Uh, my school just doesn't have it, whereas other schools will have full science curriculums with a textbook and, and everything. So as I said, I get a lot of my stuff from Generation Genius. So when I first started with the model, I was just using the Generation Genius videos. And then I was like, well, you know, what? I think my students really need to see me teaching them that content. content. So I, uh, use the information from the Generation Genius videos and the reading that come with comes with that. And I put together a Google slide with that information or a, a PowerPoint. And then I created my instructional video with that information with my face embedded and everything. So for me, one of the challenges was just figuring out how to bring it together to create the instructional video when I didn't really have much for a curriculum. Uh, but with the experiments and a lot of the other aspects, I knew that those things didn't necessarily have to be on video. I could do them separately throughout the unit or as part of a lesson and different things like that. So um, I think that in general, a big challenge with teaching science using the model really does involve figuring out how to incorporate those small group and whole class experiments and STEAM challenges into the units. So uh, the best advice I can give on this is to incorporate these activities into more of a beginning of the unit activity and then take breaks between units just to do a whole class STEAM challenge or even take breaks within a unit to pull students together to... Uh, do a particular challenge. Uh, one activity that my students enjoy doing is uh, creating bridges. So you've, you've seen in science classes where they engineer bridges and mm -hmm. then test them. So I might do that at the end of a unit. Before we start the next unit, I, I'll tell them that we're going to 
not start the next unit yet and instead just go with a steam challenge. And so I present that steam challenge and, and we do that as a whole class activity. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, can you talk more about the steam challenges? Like what is a steam challenge? Is that a thing in science that I don't know about? <laughs> it is. Um, so, so steam is uh, science, technology, engineering, art, and math. I do know I do know what steam is because art is in there. I know about that. Yeah. <laughs> so my school actually is uh, a steam school. Oh, okay. So uh, we, we try to incorporate steam into every content area at every grade level, and so some of the challenges I've done with my students have included uh, building a bridge out of straws and uh, straws and tape, and the students. So they'd work together in teams to build this bridge and then they would have to check or test it to see how much weight it would hold. So they'd tie a string onto it and put uh, weights or marbles in a little cup and they see how many marbles they can get in that cup before the bridge collapses. So there are things like that. Another thing I've done is an orca challenge. So the students had to design a tank. So imagining that we uh, have to come up with a tank for uh, animal rescue place and it has to maintain a certain temperature and it has to be able to hold an orca. And so the kids had to design what that tank would look like. And then they made a mini model out of cardboard or plastic and then filled that with water. And then they were checking the temperature of that water to try to get it to the temperature that it needed to be and then to have it stay at that temperature. Wow. Is this, is this all like as a challenge, I was imagining like a one, one off on a single day, but this sounds like a bigger deal. Like it's like a project. Yeah. Yeah. The steam challenges are, are bigger activities that might take, we might take a week of science time to, to work on these, or maybe we alternate days during our science or during the week where I have two days that they're doing self-pacing and then the other days they're working on a STEAM challenge. So sometimes they're doing two different things at the same time. That's really interesting. Are, I wonder, are the STEAM challenges, are they must-dos for your students? Like, are, Or can you use that as like buffer time for kids who are really behind and need support? Can you work with them on the self-paced stuff during that time as well? Yeah, it kind of depends on where the students are. If there are several students who are behind, then the students who are ahead of pace are going to maybe be working on a bigger STEAM challenge. And then the other students have that time to catch up on things. And then they see that these other kids are working on the STEAM challenge, so they want to do it. So right, then right. They're, they're more motivated to kind of get going and, and get back on pace so that they can participate in the activity. Yeah, I'm reminded of a podcast guest we had. I think it was Sarah Moon who said that the aspire to do activities, like your students have to actually aspire to do them. Yeah. And, and and that that definitely resonates, right? It's like they see the other kids doing their this cool activity, right? They're building a tank, they're building a bridge, and they got to finish their self-paced stuff to be able to get to that. Um, do you do you specifically? I mean, I don't know. Are the steam challenges separate from modern classrooms, or do you teach that with modern classrooms and I guess what I was going to actually ask you before I changed my mind on the question was if the STEAM challenges are like a should do or an aspire to do some kind of an optional lesson that's separate from the must do's. 
sometimes they are set up as a modern classroom activity, in which case I put together a video kind of explaining to them what they're going to be doing, and then they go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in that case, the video is more directions rather than content. Right, right. Um, sometimes it's an aspire to do, sometimes it's a must do. So when it's something that I'm doing in between units, then it's going to be a must do because everybody's doing it. We've already finished a unit. I'm just wanting to take a break from whatever it is that we were doing and, uh, do some, uh, another kind of fun activity with the kids. And it's usually tied to our science standards. So it's not just like a random activity. It's usually tied to our science standards. And in that case, it's a must do. But at other times when I'm noticing that students are moving particularly slow through a unit, then I make it more of an aspire to do activity. And so the kids who are further ahead have the chance to get started on that. And then the kids who are behind a little bit more see that these other kids are doing this fun thing and they want to do it. So and they kind of get motivated a bit more. So sometimes it's must do, sometimes it's aspire to do. Yeah, yeah. I think that thinking of aspire to do's, it's really easy to just think like, oh, the aspire to do's, those are for our fastest and, and you know hardest working students and all that. But I actually think that they're a really important pacing consideration to give those you know high flyers and fast workers something to do while you support the students who need more support. Um, and of course, they also aspire to do them so it can motivate them to get done with the stuff that they're uh, maybe taking too long to finish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well that was, that was not in our outline, but <laughs> I was super curious about those steam challenges. And I, I feel like that's, that's really cool. So thank you for that. Um, I, that question had originally been about challenges that you faced with the model. So, um, how about any big wins? Like, how do you think that modern classrooms has fit in uniquely well in science or just in general, like big wins that you've had with the model? So with the model in general, I'd say the biggest benefits have been that um, my students are taking more ownership of their learning. That's really kind of been a goal of uh, me being their teacher and also a school-wide goal to try to get the students to take more ownership of their learning. So this model really helps with that. Uh, They're also gaining a better understanding of time management, especially with fifth grade. They're still kind of learning how to manage their time. And so having all of the supports and aspects of the model in place really helps them to work towards managing their time better. Uh, I don't have a lot of behavior problems anymore compared to what I used to have. Uh, not that I had like kids running around crazy in the classroom, but like, but I, I definitely feel like there are fewer behavior challenges and, uh, students are just more excited about being in school. Um, they like having the time to kind of work at their own pace. I like having the time to breathe throughout my day and just work with my students one-on-one or in those small groups, uh, which I really wasn't able to do much before. Yeah, totally. I have been thinking about this because I'm currently in my pre-service weeks before school starts. And it's uh, like I've been thinking about how before modern classrooms, I I sort of put the burden on myself to like be in charge of the room for the entire 50 minute period, which is, it's a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. especially when you have a lot of kids. And so the model just letting them kind of do their own thing. You know, the model runs itself a little bit and you have a minute to just sort of stand there and be like, okay, 
nobody needs me right now. I can take a, take a second to breathe. Yeah, exactly. I, I feel a lot less stressed as a teacher because I don't have to manage exactly all of this stuff happening in my room as much. My students know what they're supposed to be doing and I'm available to help the students who are struggling like with math or another subject area or reading, I can more easily pull them aside and work with them one-on-one or in small groups and and just give them those extra supports that they need. And then the kids who are high flyers, they can get through the units. They don't have to wait for their peers to catch up with them. They can work through the units and then their other aspire to do activities for them to do within each content area. So... So do you allow them to do like their math? If you know that they're behind in math, for example, but they're doing great in science, will you let them do their math work in the science block? I do sometimes. It kind of depends. If a student is on pace, say the student is on pace in science or slightly ahead of pace in science, but they're falling behind in math, then I will let them use some of that science time to work on their math. I see. Well, that's kind of an advantage with being in an elementary classroom too, is there, there's that flexibility as well. Right. Like you're their same teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I do too. I mean, I, I, I let them, if they're ahead in my class, or even if they've just finished today's lesson in my class and they're like, I have this big English paper that I need to do. I'm not going to, you know, there's 20 minutes left in class. I'm not going to tell them not to work on their English paper because I feel like that's very responsible of them <laughs> to like get ahead on their music work and prioritize right uh, but i'm not their english teacher and so you know i yeah i think that that's interesting like you you're you're there you're the same person um but like you're in science mode now so that's interesting to me i mean i think it's probably coming across in the way that i'm asking you these questions like it is really interesting to me the way that elementary teachers are with the same kids for the whole day that's just a very <laughs> different uh sort of model of of teaching of like being in school than what I'm used to. And so I always, I feel like whenever I talk with elementary teachers, I sound kind of ignorant about that, but I'm just very curious and I'm learning. That's one of the things I love about teaching elementary though, is that you really get to know your students. I bet. Super well, because you are with them all day long and you get to learn their quirks and uh, the things that make them tick. And, and it's, really a great opportunity to just really get to know your students. So that's, I, I love that about elementary. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's, that's really cool. And I know my daughter loves her teacher. Like if, from the kid's perspective, I feel like it's, it's a similar thing. And then when they transition into sixth grade, they're all of a sudden they're college students, right? Like they're going from <laughs> class to class, they're looking at schedules and it's, it's a big transition. It's very different. So Anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm always really interested to hear sort of how that works just mechanically as a, as a teacher and not as a person who was in elementary school <laughs> many, many years ago. Um, so thank you so much, Hillary, for joining me. That was my last question for you. Could you let our listeners know how they can connect with you? You clearly have lots of really awesome ideas about uh, teaching science using modern classrooms. So can you share how listeners can connect with you if they'd like to? Sure. Uh, they can email me at hillary.stover at modernclassrooms.org. And it's Hillary spelled H-I-L-A-R-Y and then Stover, S-T-O-V-E-R. Uh, I am on Instagram as well, and that's just Stover Hillary. Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't use it a whole lot, but that is at H-S Beavers, B-E-A-V-E-R-S. Um, and then I do have a classroom website as well, which is uh, MissStoversHomeroom.weebly.com. Awesome. Okay. And I'll put all of that in the show notes. Um, 
thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, listeners, remember, you can always email us at podcast at modernclassrooms.org. And you can find the show notes for this episode at podcast.modernclassrooms.org slash 102 or in your podcast player if you're using one. We will have this episode's recap and transcript uploaded to the Modern Classrooms blog on Friday. So you can check there if you want to see those. Thank you all for listening. Have a great week. We will be back next Sunday. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Podcast.